Hello and welcome to the Holistic Healing Project with me, Dr. Lauren MacDonald. Each week I will be sitting down with a range of experts, thought leaders and other inspiring humans to explore how we can all bring more healing into our lives. I believe we all have the capacity to self-heal, to experience more joy, greater meaning and deeper connection. I really hope these conversations inspire and support you on your own journey back to wholeness. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Holistic Healing Project. This week I'm chatting with Dr. Gabo Mate, who is someone I have admired for years and it was a real honour speaking with him. Dr. Gabo Mate is a doctor who specialises in addiction, trauma, childhood development and the relationship between stress and illness. He is an international best-selling author of books including When the Body Says No, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts and Scattered Minds. During our conversation, we talk about a wide range of topics, including how stress and trauma can potentially contribute to disease. Now, I've always believed that stress was a factor that led to me developing cancer, but I want to make sure that you don't think that in any way that we are suggesting that if you have cancer or you've had cancer in the past, that you are responsible or to blame for your illness. Cancer is a multifactorial disease and stress is just one potential contributing factor. So I just want to make sure that that is really clear. In this episode, we also explore how our emotions impact our physiology, the impact of trauma on mental, physical and spiritual health, and addiction as being something that we all experience, even if we don't think we do. We also explore multi-generational trauma and what we can learn from indigenous communities. Gabor also describes some of the tools that he has used on his own healing journey. And then we dive into his new book and the need for a more holistic approach to illness, especially regarding mental health. I absolutely loved speaking with Gabor and you will notice halfway through the conversation, he actually flips it so that he ends up interviewing me, which was unexpected, but in true Gabor style, he is a master of inquiry. And it was really interesting to be on the receiving end of his questioning. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and as always, if you can rate and review, that continues to just help the podcast reach more people around the globe. Enjoy. Gabor, welcome to the Holistic Healing Project podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. You have honestly been such a mentor and a teacher to me over the years. And yeah, it's just a joy to be able to have this conversation with you. I have so many questions to ask you. But for anyone who isn't aware of you, doesn't know the work that you do, could we just start by maybe explaining how you came to work in the space? Because obviously your work covers so many different distinct, well, what appears from the outset to be distinct subject areas, but actually obviously there's a common thread throughout it all. And I spent over three decades as a family practitioner, during which time I worked really the whole range of human experience from delivering babies to palliative care, looking after terminally ill people. I also spent 12 years in a um, highly charged, addicted area of Vancouver, British Columbia, where I live, uh, in the downtown east side. So I worked with addictions. So my work began to, began to encompass uh, human development uh, from birth to death, the, the onset of illness. Uh, I began to notice at some point that illness wasn't random, that there were certain emotional, psychological patterns, the, uh, the culture and society 
also played a role in who got sick and who didn't, how uh, addictions were not a brain disease contrary to the medical mantra, but they're actually a response to human suffering. So really uh, my, my, my medical experience, but also my own having to deal with my own issues of depression and ADHD and addictive patterns, I really had to look at what's going on with human beings. And more and more, I developed a, a more unitary, holistic point of view, which it turns out is also the one that's supported by science. But you wouldn't know that if you just go to medical school. So I'm sure your experience as well is that you get trained very well in certain narrow ways, but the overall unity uh, and, and the oneness of physiology and psychology and you might even say spirituality utterly eludes the medical mind and, and medical practice. So on the one hand, this, I was seeing this in my practice, and the other, there was all this science that I wasn't even aware of because medical education does not present you the science. Uh, of all this, but there's a lot of science published in bona fide journals. It's not even controversial. So I'll just end this little segment by saying that there's a huge gap between one's clinical observations and the scientific evidence on the one hand and the medical ideology on the other. I completely agree. I mean, I've heard you say it before, but you know, so often in medical schools, you don't really hear the word trauma. You definitely don't get an education on the mind-body connection. It's a kind of very separate entities. And then within that, the body is seen and treated as, you know, you, you have renal physicians or you have cardiologists. Everything is split and divided, and we just don't have that unity at all anymore. And, and very much similar to yourself, I have my own really personal education into the mind-body connection. I was diagnosed with stage four cancer coming up five years ago now and mm. it was at that moment of diagnosis that I went out and really bought various books books like Mind Over Medicine and The Body Keeps the Score and then obviously I came to your work with The Body yeah. Says No and suddenly I was I just couldn't believe through all of medical school all of my work training as a doctor I hadn't come to understand the importance of the mind-body connection and how our emotions and our thoughts can really impact the physiology of our body and not only potentially contribute to illness, but actually, you know, we can harness them to actually help us self-heal. So I'd love to dive into that with you a little bit more. Well, let me first of all tell you a story apropos to what you just said. When I was writing When the Body Says No, which is my book on the mind-body connection and illness, there's the Cancer Agency of British Columbia, which is the major oncological institute here in, in, in Vancouver. And I went to the psychology department, to the head of it, and I said, look, I'm working on a book on a mind-body entity, and I'm interested in the links between emotions and psychology and cancer. And she said, well, we just don't believe there's any such connection. This is the head of the psychology department. Then I went up into the library on the fourth floor, and there's these books and articles, dozens and hundreds of them, showing the impact of emotions on malignancy. They're not even aware of what's in their own library. That's what's so surprising. Now, in terms of the connection with emotions, well, look, if I were to scream at you right now, even though you're tens of thousands of miles away, you're Australia, I think, is that right? I'm in Australia at the moment, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm far away. But if I were to scream at you right now in a hostile way, that would change your emotions. You'd go into either anger or fear or alarm. And that emotion would immediately change your physiology. Uh, your nervous system would be all of a sudden in a totally different state. Uh, your hormonal apparatus would kick in and your hormonal balance would shift. 
all of a sudden adrenaline and cortisol would pour out of your adrenal glands. Your blood vessel would constrict in your viscera and expand in your muscles so you could fight and escape. You know, your, your amygdala, which is the emotional center in the brain, would be going off like an alarm clock. Your digestion would stop. Your heart rate would change. In other words, all kinds of physiological impacts because of an emotional stimulus. Now, that's an obvious example. But the point is, this happens 24-7. It's just that we're not so aware of it. To even have to prove the connection of emotions to physiology is actually absurd because it's just so obvious. In fact, you know, emotions means energy in motion. And, 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 and our bodies are always fluidly in motion. And we know now from indisputable science that the, the, the systems that are considered to be separate, like the immune system and the nervous system and the uh, hormonal apparatus, the digestive system and the emotional apparatus in the brain, they're not separate systems at all. You can't even say that they're connected systems. They're one system. In other words, if you take a one-celled organism, like a protozoa, it's got the capacity of, uh, of defense and digestion and nervous response and excretion and reproduction all in one cell. How we evolved is these one cells conglomerated into multi-celled organisms. And, and now we began to have specialized cells, but it's still all the same one organism. So we're no more separate in our functions than that one-celled organism is. We're just more sophisticated in the organization of that unity. So that you can't separate the emotions from the physiology. In fact, it's absurd to even consider that. Now, what is remarkable is how that obvious fact does not penetrate medical practice. Like, I'm sure if I talk to you about your stage four cancer, we could find out the childhood traumas and the adult stresses that would have contributed to their onset. But my guess is that no oncologist ever asked you about those things. At no point during any of my oncology appointments did yeah. anyone, you know, nurse, doctor, healthcare professional, anyone in the, in the field turn to me and say, and how are you doing? How are yeah. you coping? Yeah. Uh, it was very much focused on the scans and the tumors and the treatment and the surgeries and yeah and I just couldn't believe it I didn't actually ever receive any therapy or counseling the whole way through my treatment which in hindsight knowing what I know now I would definitely have sought that out but at the time it was that kind of white knuckling survival mode put my head down gotta get through this and obviously that doesn't help you know I'm sure that puts further stress on my body because I wasn't talking to anyone. When you said that nobody asked you how you were a lot of patients have that experience that they don't exist as a you. Like they don't exist as a independent whole entity. They they exist as uh, organ disease or, or or a conglomeration of symptoms that have to be addressed or a malignancy that has to be extirpated. But they don't exist as individuals, and and uh, that's just a really uh, sad lack in medical education. And it does untold harm to people. Mm, definitely. Well, it's also for some people, a cancer diagnosis and all the treatment and surgery, it's a trauma, depending on how, you know, they they experience it. But to not have any support or, you know, well, there's so many practices out there, body work, things that you can be doing to help yourself kind of heal from trauma. And yet you're left in this this state of fight, flight or freeze anyway with mm -hmm. cancer. And it just seems that the very thing that brought you potentially you know, contributed to your disease, which was probably 
a trauma or lack of coping skills and then you don't even get the help through the experience and it's just like I just can't believe it it's work like yours is so important to get the message out there but yeah it does really have to penetrate the medical system um, because it's unfair to put it all on the patient to then be having to seek to seek to kind of heal themselves you know there's a new book you may have uh, heard about it but it's just it's just about a couple of weeks it's called cured um, do you know what? I've already been in contact with uh, it's Jeffrey yeah. Rediger, isn't it? He, he's actually coming on the podcast in a few weeks, which is really exciting. Wonderful. Let's see. I don't for me. So, 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 so you know all about the book about these so-called spontaneous remissions, which are not spontaneous at all, in the sense that it's just they, there's a reason why they happen. But Jeff told me when I interviewed him that at Harvard until a few years ago, if you talked about mind-body medicine, you'd be jeopardizing your career. And, and the funny thing is, there were people at Harvard talking about this uh, 70, 80 years ago. So this stuff gets talked about, it gets documented, there's papers, there's tens of thousands of research articles, and it doesn't penetrate. That's mm. that, that would be an interesting study in itself. Mm, not long after my diagnosis, my granddad, who was a doctor, he had been very interested in mind-body medicine. I mean... He died a few years ago at the age of nearly 90. So, you know, you can imagine how, how long he'd been in the medical field. He dusted off all of these books on mind-body medicine from his library for me to have a look at at that right. time. And it was as if, yeah, he was bringing out these ancient relics to kind of explore. And yet it was all really what's now being replicated in these newer books, which, you know, thank God they are coming out because yeah. there just seems to have been such a hiatus in the in you know this mind body medicine it's not new is it but it it was forgotten and, and when the body says no if you remember the first chapter is called the, the bermuda triangle and and the bermuda triangle is this place where ships sink without a trace and that's what i meant like the dissolved evidence was published and talked about and then it sinks without a trace like it was never published so the average physician never hears it I, I, well that's a whole other subject but you know there's an interesting question of why is this gap between the science and practice definitely yeah no but just thank you for all the work that you do in this field because I think I was having a personal experience of it anyway knowing you know I had a a knowing when I was ill that I had to get rid of the very thing that had made me sick I knew that it had been my emotional health that had had really kind of contributed to my illness but so so there is there is an element of intuition I think when you're when you are ill as well you kind of you come to know what you need to do to you know get rid of certain toxic toxic relationships or whatever it is but but seeing the science and reading your book yeah that's just brilliant as well but there, there is that intuition which, you know not in everybody I, I, I think it is in everybody but it doesn't rise to consciousness in everybody and and then not everybody listens to it and then the trouble is even when they do it's invalidated by doctors you know, so rather than supporting those intuitive self-healing parts, we tend to either ignore or, or invalidate them. Would you mind if we just talk a bit more about trauma? Because as I mentioned before, you are, you know, you're an expert in addiction and ADHD. And obviously we've been discussing about the impact of stress and disease. They all seem to be kind of separate entities. And yet trauma is the common thread that really ties them all together and I know you have a specific definition for trauma would you mind explaining that for anyone who hasn't heard it before sure so um, when people think of trauma they usually um, visualize terrible things happening like sexual abuse or a tsunami or a war or 
somebody dying or physical abuse. And those things are traumatic or can be, but they're not the trauma. So trauma, the word, really, it's self-explanatory. It comes from the Greek word for wound. So trauma is a wound. Trauma is an unhealed wound. Unhealed wounds, well, uh, we protect them. We, 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 we constrict around them. You know, if I had a wound on my chest right now, I'd be huddling over and, and, and hunched over to protect it. So a trauma is a wound that hasn't healed, so we develop all these protections around it. And those protections, while they help in the first place, they also constrict us and limit us in the long term. So around trauma, we develop self-limiting physical behaviors and mental patterns and, 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 and beliefs and emotional dynamics. So a trauma really is a limitation of the self, and it's a disconnection from the self. Or even if you think of scar tissue, like if you have a deep wound and you have scar tissue, well, that that's good that you have scar tissue, but scar tissue is hard, it has no feeling in it, and it has no growth capacity. So you think of trauma as a highly scarred wound or as an unprotected, unhealed wound that we hunch and constrict around. So trauma is not the same as experiencing pain. Like People talk about, I saw this movie last night and I was traumatized. No, you weren't traumatized, you were just upset or fearful. That's not the same as trauma. Trauma happens when there's a constriction that results so that you are more constricted in your capacity to respond to the world and to see yourself and to see others than you were before the trauma. That's what a trauma is. And I've been studying compassionate inquiry with you since August now. For anyone who doesn't know, it's a psychotherapeutic approach that you developed to really help explore trauma and really kind of drill down into the stories that we or our clients are telling themselves and we take it all the way back to childhood and really ask the client when was the first time that you experienced feeling like that that's where your work is is really focused isn't it the fact that so often it's it's childhood trauma that then is whether it's the physiology of the body in an adult life or whether it's the behaviors or the you know the coping mechanisms it comes out because of a result of childhood experience absolutely so i was just talking today uh since i'm writing a new book i do interviews myself and we'll be interviewing you too and uh, i was talking to bruce lipton today now do you know bruce's work yeah i do yeah i read i read that book well, a long time ago now but it's absolutely incredible the biology of belief yeah yeah i was talking to him just a few hours ago and he was talking about the different brain waves that come online as, as we develop. So, you know, the, the first brain wave is the, um, I almost forget what they're called, but maybe Delta, you know, but the point is that up until about the first six years, our brain waves keep us kind of uh, in a certain state of almost like you were being hypnotized. So like we live in this fantasy world in a sense, because kids are great at fantasizing. It takes a different brain waves to fantasize. Largely, it's unconscious, and this is when they're programmed. And so they download these messages about the world. Well, if you're having an experience in childhood when, when you're being hurt a lot emotionally, then what you're downloading is a view of yourself as deficient, for which you have to compensate by becoming extra good or extra nice or extra beautiful or whatever. Those are coping mechanisms. The wound is the sense of deficiency, the coping mechanism is being extra nice or extra active or extra beautiful or extra good or whatever it is. Now you're not concerned with your truth anymore. You're concerned with trying to compensate for your lack of being enough. And that sense of being enough is inculcated in you before you have any conscious choice in the matter. So it's almost like you're hypnotized into thinking you're not good enough. 
and then you spend the rest of your life uh, acting from that belief. Mm-hmm. And how does your work in addiction come into this? Because I know that you you say that you need to ask not why the addiction, but why the pain. Yeah, let me give you a definition of addiction, and then you can tell me whether or not it's familiar to you. But again, when we talk about addictions, people, people always think of drug users, junkies, heroin users, cocaine shooters, this kind of stuff, all the pejoratives. But I don't define addiction via substances at all. Uh, I say an addiction is manifested in any behavior that a person finds temporary pleasure or relief in and therefore craves and then suffers negative consequences as a result of in the long term but doesn't give it up. So it's craving relief, pleasure in the short term, negative impact in the long term, difficulty or refusal to give it up. That's what an addiction is. And you'll know the gain. I said nothing about drugs. So that could involve drugs, obviously, alcohol, nicotine, cigarettes, heroin, whatever. It could also be sex, gambling, shopping, work, relationships, uh, eating. So just to illuminate how I would approach addiction, let me ask you if, according to that definition, you've ever had an addiction. And I'm not going to ask you what it was. I mean, I don't care. I mean, yeah, definitely. Okay. So again, without asking what that might have been or when, let me just ask you what it do for you. What did you get from it that you liked? It must have had some benefit to you in the short term. A distraction. Distraction from? The current moment, what I was doing. and um, a, mi- a mindless thing that I could do. I mean, I will tell you, I think I do have a slight addiction to my phone. And I'm re- trying really hard to put it out the room at night and make sure I'm not looking at it too much. But it's definitely there. And I think it does serve a purpose that it's a bit of escapism. Okay, but when, does, when do people have to escape? When they don't want to sit with themselves? Well, when they're having an uncomfortable, difficult, undesirable experience, right? In other words, there's some kind of emotional distress there or pain. In other words, the addiction is not a problem. It's not the problem. It is a problem, but it's not the problem. The problem is why you have to escape from yourself. And there's some pain underneath that. So that's why I say it's not the addiction, but why the pain. And so when I approach addiction, it's not about what's wrong with it, but... Why exactly did it come along in your life? And what happened to you that you became so uncomfortable with yourself that you have to distract yourself from the present moment? Well, that's trauma. Because no infant is ever escaping the present moment. They're very much in the present moment. Hmm. It's all there is. They have no future to look forward to or a past to escape from. They just are there. If they're uncomfortable, they'll tell you, I'm uncomfortable. But they're very much uncomfortable in the present moment. You know, so by the time you get to adulthood and we have to escape from ourselves, a whole bunch of things have happened to make being ourselves very uncomfortable for us. And that's what I call the trauma. Hmm. And when you talk about authentic self, that's something else that I know you mention a lot in Compassionate Inquiry. And obviously trauma being a disconnection from yourself. Could you just explain a little bit more about that? To go back to your example of, having this sense that this life you were leading was harmful to you. What part of you knew that? Before my cancer diagnosis. Yeah. It was a very cerebral kind of analyzing, but then I could just feel it in my body. Yeah, well, which part of you do you think could feel all that? My authentic self, my true true essence. That's what I'm saying. Hmm. It's there, talking to us. We just have shut it off as kids because it was too painful to listen to because of circumstances. 
So it's not that mysterious. It's not some big. I mean, we can talk about essence in spiritual terms, and spiritual teachers do. I'm not a certainly not a spiritual adept, but for me, it's just a real part of ourselves that actually, when we pay attention to it, it knows reality and connects us to to reality. So that's the authentic self. I have a much stronger connection to myself post illness. Um, I think there's been a lot of layers shed and in a way that is, you know, I'm sure a lot of people hate this expression of, you know, the gift of cancer or the gift of illness, but there has been lots of silver linings within it in terms of just coming back to myself and, and really pivoting my whole life um, from, from the diagnosis as well. And just getting to know myself better. It's been a healing journey of, of coming back to myself and who I am, I think. It's dangerous to talk about the gift of cancer. If I was just diagnosed, I wouldn't want somebody coming to tell me what a gift it's got. You no, know? You'd, you'd definitely not want that. But on the other hand, many people who have been through it will look upon, it as a, look upon it as a gift because it more or less compelled them to find themselves, which is very precious, to find their authentic selves, which is what I hear you describing. So um, while you can't prescribe the idea that cancer is a teacher, People can certainly come to that realization themselves and often do. I mean, I don't know if I asked you, are you grateful that you had the cancer or are you, or are you bitter that you had it or, or, what, or are you neutral about it? I'm not presuming what your answer is. I'm just curious. Um, I don't know whether the word is grateful, but I am. Are you grateful for what you've learned as a result? I'm definitely grateful for what I've learned and I'm curious as to why. I know why I needed to go through the experience because everything is so much more open and I'm living so much more, such a fuller, more aligned life as a result. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be having this conversation with you if I hadn't been through what I've been through. I would still be bumbling around the hospital walls, you know, really miserable in my job, not feeling, mm -hmm. um, feeling pretty empty, I think. So yeah, in in that way, definitely, I've I've grown and learned a lot, and yeah, it, it, I do I do think it is for me. It was a gift. I think now, obviously, when you're in it, it's definitely the last thing that you you feel. Of course, of course. Mm. Um, do you mind if we pivot a little bit? And as you mentioned, I am currently in Australia, and I have been here for three months, taking some time off work, and obviously the bushfires have been you know, shown all around the world, absolute devastation that has been going on in Australia, both, you know, in terms of the people, the wildlife, the land, um, it really has been devastating. And I read a really interesting article the other day um, explaining and exploring the unique trauma that Aboriginal people have been through as a result of the bushfires. And obviously not saying that they are more affected than anyone else, but it's it's a unique a unique situation because obviously they are so tied up with the land. The land is so sacred to them. I could see that they are more affected because they're much yeah. more connected to the land, the more traumatized they're going to be. And uh, I know you've done a lot of work with the First Nations people in Canada. And I was just, when I was reading it, I was just drawing some, some parallels really about how this intergenerational trauma occurs. You know, it's the Aboriginal people, this is not the first trauma. They have been experiencing trauma after trauma after trauma, generation after generation. And and how does that affect, you know, this is, it's such a huge trauma for them to go through very much like other communities. 
And what do you think about this? How does it really affect them? And how can we begin to help support their healing journey? Well, first of all, if you recall, I, if you remember to do so, I'd love if you could send me that article. I'd love to see it. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes as well. It's a really, it's a brilliantly written article. They don't have the answer, but it's just exploring it. Well, again, recall what I said about trauma. It's not what happens to you, it's what happens inside you. No, the more traumatized you were before, the more likely you can be traumatized again. That's just how it works, because one trauma feeds or exacerbates another. I was in Australia, I guess, a year and a half ago. You know, when you read the statistics, the the odds of an Aboriginal young man being jailed is something like 20 times greater than a non-Aboriginal. Uh, the violence and the racism and the um, the historical segregation, not just segregation, but the uh, abduction of their children, the destruction of their ways of life. I mean, it, you know, um, and then the invalidation of their spiritual ways. You know, so the same thing is in all colonial countries. And... Uh, the colonialists always tell themselves that I'm doing this for the benefit of the natives so I can civilize them. But really what it is, that's just a cover for naked exploitation and uh, appropriation. And it's going on right now. It's still going on in Canada in more sophisticated ways. Um, and it's going on in South America in the rainforest. Uh, Brazil is a good, egregious example of it right now. So then when a potentially traumatic event like these bushfires come along, it could have a deeply traumatizing effect on people that are already hurt, which means that they're already, to some degree, have been um, disenfranchised from their own healing traditions. Now, on the other hand, it does not need to be traumatic, depending on how these people handle it. So it could be a huge challenge, but it, does it need to be traumatic? Not necessarily, you know, because in all of these indigenous traditions, including in Australia, there's powerful healing modalities. Healing modalities that we could really learn and benefit from. So if they're able to deploy their indigenous spiritual healing powers, I'm not talking about spirits or, or, or angels. I'm talking about their internal spiritual capacities to face yet another catastrophe. They may even grow from it for all I know. So trauma is not what happens to you. Trauma is what happens inside you. And what happens inside you is very much depends on what resources are available to you. I hope they can use their their own innate resources to confront this um, at the same time. In terms of what we can do to support them, well, for God's sakes, you know, I, I, I kind of, I'm rather asking what they can do to support us because we're sicker than they are in terms of our relationship to nature and to life and to, to the cosmos, you know. What can we learn mm -hmm. We could support them by learning from their ways is what we could do. Yeah, I love that. That's so true. Ways which emphasize communality versus individual competition, which, which emphasize compassion instead of aggression, uh, you know, which, which emphasize um, the benefit of the group rather than the aggrandizement of the individual, which, which emphasize connection with nature rather than an assault on nature. I mean, mm -hmm. support them by letting their wisdom support us, really. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. That's really, really beautifully said. Um, as we're talking about nature and Indigenous people, could we explore a little bit? I know you're passionate about plant medicine as a potential tool for healing. And I actually, um, 
I went on several plant medicine retreats last year, really because I knew I'd been through, I, I didn't mention it, but I also was in a car accident 18 months ago and ended up spending quite a long time in a wheelchair, had a broken leg, spent about, I think it was 18 weeks in the end on crutches. And that was, you know, another, again, you know, the way you describe trauma, I don't really feel that I experienced trauma with either my cancer diagnosis or the car accident personally. Um, I know everyone's different, but having said all that, I was a bit worried that maybe I was just suppressing my emotions and that it was going to come out, you know, later on in some other illness or something. So I, I started to explore plant medicine and, and I was interested from a psychiatry point of view, you know, potentially the yeah how it might be used in the future but because I know specifically with ayahuasca you've done a lot of work with that plant medicine obviously there's a huge renaissance at the moment and um, what's your view really on really plant medicine for healing sure well I mean if we understand what we've been discussing this whole time which is the unity of mind and body which is a tremendous impact of, of our emotions and our unconscious beliefs on our physiology then it follows that any modality that would make us more aware of what these unconscious beliefs are, that might actually take us back into some early experiences on the emotional level that were programmed into us, which gave rise to those unconscious beliefs. Or on the other hand, any modality that might actually, at least temporarily, put us in touch with our more authentic self, that could be a powerful healing modality. And so that's how the plant medicines work. So there's no, there's no uh, magic about them. They just give us a, a way to get past our conscious and our unconscious defenses and, and, and experience our inner reality as it truly is. And that might be at times very scary, and for a lot of people it is, but it's also very healing if it's in the appropriate context. And then specifically with ayahuasca, there's a deep, long, sophisticated healing tradition. So these... That's just a question of, it's not like a Western drug. You take the drug and it's got its physiological effect. That's not the idea with ayahuasca. In fact, with ayahuasca, for a long time, the participants didn't even drink the, the ayahuasca. It was just the, the shaman that did. And the shaman would then, with the ayahuasca, do the, go on his soul journey and, and, and then see into the life and soul experience of the participant and help guide them from there. It's just typical shamanic stuff. It's the shaman that goes on the journey, not the participant. Mm, interesting. Okay. Um, no, more recently, people have been drinking the ayahuasca as well, you know, or at least not more recently, but that, that's how it's not done now. So, so both the shaman and the participant is under the influence of the plant. And, and when you're that open to your unconscious, which is what the ayahuasca does for you, that's whether that's the unconscious essential self or it's the unconscious scared child, traumatized, hurt, aggrieved child. And you're working with a shaman who can see all that in you without, without you having to say a word because they do see, believe me, I work with them. They see you. I did actually try and get onto your retreat last year in Peru. I was too late to apply, but I, did, I, I saw that you were running a retreat and it looked really, really powerful. It's a good thing you didn't make it. Oh, really? <laughs> because what happened is, talk about being seen, I arrived at that retreat and the shamans took one look at me in ceremony and they said, buddy, you're in no condition to lead anything. You're too stressed and traumatized yourself. Need to work on you privately. Wow. So they fired me from my own retreat. You know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, and you had your own experience? You had, they took you on your own healing journey? 
they, they took me on my own journey on my own without the group and the group had their own experiences without me you know that was good for them it was great but what i'm saying is even if you had come on my retreat within a day you would have found that it wasn't my retreat at all i was having my own retreat because these guys said look not only did they have your own stuff that's not resolved they also said that you've been working with so much trauma that they don't know the thing about me by the way this is not like they knew about me. They, they, I don't come in there like a best-selling international author and speaker. I come in like another gringo medical, you know. And <laughs> and, and they say, uh, <clears throat> you've been working with traumatized people, obviously. And you've been absorbing the traumas of other people. And you haven't cleared it out of yourself. So we need to work with you to clear that trauma. Now, that's another thing that Western medicine doesn't teach you. Like a psychiatrist, for example, work with traumatized people. They don't know that. Most psychiatrists yeah. don't know that they're working with traumatized people. They think they're working with this disease or that disease. Well, underneath all those diseases is trauma. But that doesn't mean that the energy of trauma is not there. So these psychiatrists or medical doctors in general are, are absorbing the traumas of their clients all the time, unless they put up this big, thick professional wall, in which case there's those, you know, but a lot of them, you know, they're, they're good people. They they're sensitive. They they absorb all this trauma, but we don't. We are not taught to clear it out of ourselves. No, definitely. I've had. I've definitely had experiences working within psychiatry where I feel it. It's a, such a. It's a heaviness. And if you're an empathetic, like you said, yeah. if you're a kind, good person, you're not going to have a big, a big barrier up. You're going to really take on that. You can't help but take on that person's um, their suffering really, and their their pain. And yeah, of course, you don't really have an outlet or you haven't been trained or taught how to look after yourself. Well, again, and the shamans are trained to clear that stuff out of themselves. You know, I don't want to romanticize them. There's a lot of dysfunction in that world as well. There's sexual exploitation, you know, like in every, in every world, there's corruption, you know. But it is in its pure form, uh, it is a beautiful, uh, uh, sophisticated, layered healing tradition. And uh, I had quite the experience with them. Hmm. As much as I resented being fired from my own retreat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wouldn't have met you anyway. I wouldn't have seen you. Um, so I know we haven't really touched on it, but you have your own, your history of trauma yourself. Yeah. And you speak very openly about how really you came to this work on the background of your experience as a baby and growing up in kind of a Holocaust I didn't grow up in the Holocaust. I was born into it and I spent my first year and just of my first year pretty much under the shadow of it, under the Nazi rule in Hungary. But that was traumatic enough, you know, uh, given what my family went through and, and so on. So a lot of my imprints are from that first year, long, long before I can have any conscious recollection of it. And what have you found that's been helpful on your own your own healing journey. We've touched on plant medicine. What, what else have you found helpful? Ask me on a bad day and I'll say nothing. You know, so, so it's not like, it's not like I can say, boy, I'm through it now, you know, because these patterns are pretty deep and they can arise, you know, but having said that, I'm not the same person as I was 30 years ago in my 40s and I'm not the same person I was a year ago. So the gro growth is, is always available, expansion, if, contra if trauma is contraction, then the opposite of trauma is expansion and growth, and that's always possible. So what has helped? Um, well, psychotherapy has helped. Mindfulness practices have helped. Yoga has helped. The plant medicine has helped. 
but it's helped a lot is being in a conscious marriage. As I've often complained, I'm, I'm, I've married my own lie detector, you know, like, I, I, just, I just don't get away with much so that I'm called, you know, and, and if I want to stay in this marriage, I have to keep going. Yeah, you need someone that holds a mirror up to you and really lets your, you know, so you can see yourself properly. And you have to have the willingness to see yourself. I mean, marriages mostly break down because people don't have the willingness to see themselves uh, authentically. They want to hold on to a certain self-image. And when the partner doesn't feed that self-image anymore, then they fall out of love and they fall in love with somebody else. So they blame the partner, you know, well, I've been through my share of that, but also it's been a crucible for tremendous growth as well. You know, what else? Uh, I've always had a real deep interest in the truth. Ultimately, I'm more interested in the truth than in being right. So that has helped. The medical work and, and what I've been able to witness in medical work with, with my clients and whether the newborns or the dying ones has been tremendous education. And I've been exposed to the literature. I, I, so there's been many, many sources of my learning. And I've had I've met great people who've taught me great things. So many, many things went into it. But I say fundamentally, it has to begin with realizing, maybe as maybe you realize, that this life I'm leading is not authentic. It's not me. It's not working for me. What is the truth here? So I think that question has been the biggest opening. And that question has been with me for a long time. Mm, thank you. Yeah, that's that's powerful. Can we talk about your new book? I know you're working on it at the moment, and we're actually going to have a discussion after this call um, to explore it a bit more. But the title is The Myth of Normal, Illness and Health in an Insane Culture. What do you mean by that? Well, see, I almost feel like I don't need to write the book. I should just publish the title with the title page and a bunch of empty pages and everybody could just write in their own script. Well, what I mean by that is, is that what is considered normal in this society is actually ab is abnormal. Abnormal in terms of what? Abnormal in terms of human needs and human nature. We didn't evolve in a competitive, aggressive, exploitative, unequal, um, relentlessly manipulative, hyperactive, addiction-ridden, distraction, possessed, misogynistic culture. That's not how we evolved as human beings. For millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years, and even for most of the 100,000 or 130,000 years that our particular species, Homo sapiens sapiens, has been on the earth, we did not live the way we're living now. What we're living now is an absolute abnormality in terms of our actual needs. So that's the myth of normal. And then furthermore, all kinds of behaviors that are totally dysfunctional are considered normal here you know like if you are willing to exploit millions of people and destroy the earth in the process you'll be taught as a great success and you'll be rewarded with, with great riches if you're good at it and well, that's abnormal what is normal here is abnormal furthermore i'm saying that in a culture like this illness is not an individual misfortune it's a manifestation of, of a li of way of life that's in inherently unhealthy. So illness is actually a normal response to an abnormal situation. And when you talk about unmet needs, what are those key unmet needs that you've identified? Well, we have a need for connection, for belonging, for being seen, for having meaning in our lives, for having our work have meaning to us, communality, for uh, some sense of... I'll use the word spiritual for not having, for lack of a better word, but it's such a multifaceted word that everybody understands it differently. But spiritual in the sense of 
of being connected to something greater than our little egos, of, of realizing that we're part of something much more bigger and that we're not alone in this terrifying universe. So we, these are genuine human needs. Mm -hmm. They show up in childhood. And, and, and as long as those needs are satisfied in childhood, we'll grow up pretty well. And if they're not, we'll grow up with illnesses. So that the, the mental illnesses that people suffer from or the physical illnesses, and by the way, illness itself is a construct. You know, I mean, there's other ways to talk about the same phenomena without using the word illness. But for shorthand, let's use the word illness. These illnesses are actually normal responses to abnormal situations. Take something like depression, the, the illness of depression. Or what does it mean to depress something? It means to push it down. Or what is pushed on in depression? Emotions are pushed on. Or why would somebody push down their emotions? Because they're too painful and there's nobody there to help them handle it. In other words, depression is a normal response to an abnormal situation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can't wait to read this book and I'm going to make sure I give it to all of my psychiatry colleagues because psychiatry, you know, especially, we just focus on giving out drugs, really. Obviously, you know, there is psychologists, we, there are access to other kind of sorts of support, but it is really um, just medicalized. And we don't really see the person in the context of their their life, not just that present moment, but really the context of their entire life and what might have led to this so-called illness. I was talking to a young woman the other day. Um, she's uh, training as a professional in one of the psychological fields. I won't say anything more to identify her. She suffered from, um, that was diagnosed with anorexia at age seven. At age eight, she was hospitalized and she was held down forcibly and they shoved a nasogastric tube up her nostril and tried to get it into her esophagus, into her stomach to, to tube feed her. She struggled mightily and they never succeeded. But this is how she was treated for years and years and years was force feeding. Nobody ever inquired into the emotional sources of why this little girl wasn't eating. What was actually troubling her? What did that represent in her life? And this is their this is their idea of, of healing human beings, and this is it in a major city at a major medical center. And there's just not been much development really in the whole field. In you know we've had such advances in oncology, and you know you look at all these other specialities, and it's still pretty stuck in the dark ages. This this idea of of mental illness being separate to to the body, but also really looking at the bigger picture of society and where that person's come from uh, and then trying to treat it just as as the as the mind you know with changing chemicals and you know it just it doesn't doesn't fit well they don't even treat the mind they treat the brain um, yeah. they see it primarily as a brain disease no sure enough look i've taken prozac you know what and this helped me at times so i'm not against psychiatric medications it doesn't deal with the underlying problem but it certainly can make you feel better and function better but if, if that's all you're doing, all you're doing is you're treating, a, a, you know, the, the ideology or the, or the belief is that mental illness is an outcome of disordered brain chemicals. But the fact that it's life that disorders or orders brain chemicals is never considered. And that it's early experience that programs one's brain chemistry. And that ongoing stresses and particularly in a stressed culture can uh, deplete or, or disorganize certain brain circuits so that the mental illness is not... Uh, process of an individual but the process of an individual in context 
And I think the, the drug, the say if you do need to get prescribed medication, it can be really useful in, in the acute setting or yeah. to keep the patient safe in that moment. But then it's, you know, it's the digging down and really uncovering, okay, but where is this coming from? Yeah, yeah. And that, and that in general, I mean, there are exceptions, but in general, that doesn't happen in psychiatry. No. It's interesting about psychiatrists, I think, because um, in some ways, they're the, some of the most defended people I know. Uh, I, I think there's a reason why somebody goes into psychiatry. I mean, there's probably several reasons, but one of them is if you're really uncomfortable with certain emotional issues and you just want to control it in other people so you don't have to deal with it in yourself, uh, you might want to go into psychiatry. And I've seen these people, and they're very rigid in their approach. I've also seen very humane and very connected psychiatrists. I'm not trying to brush the whole profession with, with a single color, but that resistance to a holistic uh, biopsychosocial view of human beings is very powerful in psychiatry. I did mention to a few colleagues when I was going to a psilocybin retreat last year, mm. just because there'd been a lot of, you know, in, in various journals, it's, you know, it's not hidden anymore. It's, you know, people no. are saying it's useful for anxiety, depression, addiction. And in my case, I was really intrigued in terms of it, the, the research with stage four cancer patients and, you know, helping them to get over any fear of dying. And I explained to them why I was going and that I wanted to make sure I had kind of worked through any trauma I'd been through and really, you know, I wasn't suppressing anything. I, the response, I, was, I think I went in to share and just be open and I thought they'd be interested. Um, and instead it was, it was met with concern and wondering why on earth I was going off to do this. And yeah, I really, I just thought I'm not going to ever speak to colleagues about that. Definitely not for a while anyway. I don't think they're ready. Um, but, yeah. but it's really interesting, isn't it? You know, it's all this new science is there and yet there's not, not everyone, like you said, some people are still resistant to, to yeah. the holistic methods that we have available now. Well, the mainstream certainly is, yeah, and, and this is true of all across medicine. You know, I mean, yeah, there are advances in oncology, but not enough. Most people I talk to go to oncologists are never asked about how they're doing, or, or I mean, how they're doing as a whole person. They're never asked about their childhood, their stresses, their relationships. Nothing that just doesn't even come up. No, no, I think when I meant the advances, it's just yeah, the the, the medicine has got much better in terms of yeah. the treatment, but yeah, the actual bigger picture is still needs a lot of work, definitely. Absolutely. And just to end then, just to close, I ask all of my guests, and I know we've touched on it a little bit during our conversation, but what does holistic healing mean to you? Well, um, actually, you know what? I should look up the meaning of the word holistic, you know, spelled H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C. But to me, it means like if you put the W in front of it, like holistic, like you're looking at the whole picture, you know, and, and when I say the whole picture, I mean, just we know everything we've talked about we know the science is not even vaguely controversial that the emotions and the mind and the body are just not, not that they're inseparable that they're one unit and that's true down to the very cellular even microcellular level so which proteins are floating in your blood and how much inflammation there's in your system has a lot to do with your life experience traumas current stresses and so on and and and, and the degree of resistance in your blood vessels, which will define your blood pressure, is not like a random separate event. It has to do with how much pressure you're under in life. Like, interestingly enough, in writing this book, I'm monitoring my blood pressure and it's edging upwards, you know. 
it's a lot of stress writing this book for me. You know, I'm haven't quite found my way into it yet. I, 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 I know it's a great title and a great topic, and everybody's just looking for it. But I'm, I've had my moments of real anxiety around it, and so you know, I check my blood pressure, and I'm noticing it go up, and I know why. You know, so holistic simply means that it's all one, and all one is not just in the, on the level of the individual organism, but on, on the level of the family and, the, and 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 the community and the society and the whole world. So that literally everything that happens to one is a manifestation of the larger cosmos. And, of course, in a world where there's significant inequality, you and I as kind of well-established middle-class professionals have much more agency when we're conscious than, say, somebody who's facing deep poverty and discrimination. So not that they're helpless, but, but you know, it, it's... It's not surprising that if you do the studies, disease rates are often related to race or, or gender or, or social status. So is longevity and so on. Or if you take a fact like autoimmune disease, women are eight, 75 to 80% of people with autoimmune disease are women. And the ratio of multiple sclerosis keeps, incre keeps increasing for women, but not for men. So these days, a woman is three and a half times as likely to develop multiple sclerosis as a man is. And what is that all about? It's not genetic, because genes don't change. That wasn't the case 80 years ago. Why is it the case now? Well, there's got to be something with the whole environment going on that affects women more than it affects men. So it can't be the food or the climate, because that hasn't changed more for one gender than the other. What is it? Well, I think it's stresses. You know? and, and so in other words, holistic means you just include everything. Social trends, economics gender issues, racial issues, emotional factors, traumas, um, everything, 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 in, in the understanding of human health and, uh, and illness. That's what, it, that's what holistic means to me. Well, interestingly enough, uh, you may know this, but the, word, the English word healing originates from the word whole. So we're back to holistic again. So healing, I mean, if, if we talk about trauma as a disconnection and as a fragmentation of the self, healing ultimately is a reintegration yeah that's lovely and that's exactly why I named the podcast it's not I think because I'm a obviously a medical doctor I was a little bit concerned that people were going to think I was talking about just healing the physical body healing a wound healing you know yeah. a broken leg but actually it is this this bigger idea of healing really the whole person and coming back into alignment and yeah like you said we've talked a lot about the authentic self but really tuning into that and then living life from that place that's right. And someday I hope to get there, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Same. I'm, not, I'm definitely not saying I am healed and I'm on the other side. This is just me walking alongside you all on this healing journey. Absolutely. Lovely. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. For those of you who'd like to take a deeper dive into your healing and transformation, I would love to invite you to join me on retreat in Bali this April. The Reconnection Retreat is being held in Ubud between the 18th and the 24th of April, and we still have a few spaces left. So if you're feeling a bit stuck, maybe going through a life transition, or maybe you just want to reconnect with your true essence and come back alive, then this retreat might be exactly what you're looking for. The reconnection is a journey from disconnected to reconnected, nourished and aligned. 
through yoga, meditation, breathwork, movement and other unique workshops, trips and ceremonies, we help guide you back to yourself. After all, the relationship with yourself is the most important one you will ever have. So many of us are disconnected and we just need that time and space to find ourselves, really tap into what's true for us and then we can go back out into the world and shine our truest expression. So if you're interested, please get in touch. You can head on over to my website at drlaurenmcdonald.com forward slash retreat for all the retreat details. And otherwise, just send me a message either via Instagram or an email and I can get back to you. I really hope you can join us in Bali in April. Please remember that whilst I am a qualified medical doctor, I am not your medical doctor. So whilst we often talk about health and well-being and we give out tools and tips and sometimes discuss topics that are a little bit fringe or alternative, this is very much for information only. It is not individual medical advice. So please, if you have any health concerns, make sure you go and see your own practitioner.